All right. Um, how y'all doing? Good. Thank you so much for coming out this evening. Um, it's great to see a lot of faces here in the room tonight. You know, it's kind of lots come out on a Thursday night, so we're uh, we're just really glad and grateful that um, each of you are here. And some of you, this may be your first time, might be wondering, what is this? What am I? What am I here for exactly? Uh, so this is a uh, this is a ministry that we started about a year ago, and uh, it's called Gospel and Marketplace, and it began out of a series of conversations. Um, Eric Lauterbach, Caitlin Dirk, and myself and Frank uh, began to just sort of ask the question of, so every Sunday we um, were receiving the message and trying to live out the truth of all of life is all for Jesus. Um, and what does that mean in the marketplace, though? Um, how can we flesh that idea out even further? And so we had all kinds of questions in terms of what does it look like to be ambitious? Um, what does it mean to be successful? Um, these are questions that I have with um, close people in my life. Frank and I get together on a pretty frequent basis, and we talk about this all the time. And so we wanted to create a forum and an opportunity to just dig deeper into these questions. And there are opportunities to get to know each other more in terms of our respective workplaces and um, develop relationships and think through these things. We thought that'd be great. And so um, this, this ministry of Redemption Arcadia really has two components to it. It's pretty simple. The first is we do all of life interviews once a month. It creates an opportunity for us to get to know each other more in the congregation to just talk. This is how I see God working in my career. Uh, these are the challenges that I'm facing. Um, and these are the opportunities that I'm seeing. And then uh, this, our big group gathering where we get together effectively once, once a quarter um, and just talk through something that's topical. And so tonight, we're going to talk about what might seem like a kind of strange concept and combination, and that is fear and imagination. Fear and imagination. So why this topic? Where did this come from? Um, honestly, it's just something that I've been thinking about a lot myself over the past year and, and um, really spending more time looking into and, and kind of exploring. And um, I just thought, you know, I think this could be something that um, we could take a closer look at and see what we have to say collectively and uncover as it finds itself in the workplace. And so um, there's really two pieces tonight. The imagination part, what does that mean exactly? Um, it doesn't necessarily mean something that's creative or artistic. Rather, it's the God-given vision that each of us has as we live out our respective callings within the workplace. Each of us are wired uniquely, have unique passions, desires. Um, we have experiences professionally. Um, and all of that finds its impetus in how we were made in the image of God. And so that's the imagination part. The imagination part can look like any number of things, whether it's um, this is a new business I want to launch, this is how I'd like to reinvent myself in my career, these are practices I'd like to bring into my respective workplace, uh, I'd like to get further training. Um, it's that God imprint on our minds and our hearts. The fear component, though. Uh, we're, made to, we're made to work. We are God's workmanship. He's prepared good works for us to do. And yet, as each of us know, intimately, work is hard. It can be a real struggle. And one of the ways that it's a real struggle is the face and many faces of fear. I think fear is one of those things that um, is sort of a dirty little secret, if you will, um, that we all experience to one degree or another, whether we're struggling with ourselves, 
whether coworkers are battling this, whether we see this within people that we collaborate or interact with. But God has called us and created us for work. Um, and so we each know that we have uh, things that we want to do in the workplace, but that can be fraught with challenges. Fear is something that has played itself out within Scripture. If you look at the pages of Scripture, this is a consistent theme that we see with characters in the Bible that have their own vocational struggles. Take Joshua, for example. Joshua is called to, to pick up the baton from Moses. He's an administrator. He's a leader. He's a military general. He's, he's, he's working out his faith. And God tells him, what? Be strong and courageous and don't be afraid. He tells him in a vocational context. It's not just relationally between him and his Lord. It's how it plays itself out in the work context. God knew that fear would be a real struggle. We see this in the New Testament. Uh, Peter denies his Lord. Uh, to his contemporaries, afraid of what they're going to think of him. So fear can be a very toxic thing that can prevent us potentially from living out the calling that God has in each of our lives. Um, it's interesting, if you think about the quote that FDR gave during the Great Depression, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. What's interesting about that idea, and when, when God tells Joshua, do not be afraid, it's more of a state of being, a mindset, a way of living, if you will, than perhaps it is a verb. Uh, I had this quote up on, uh, on the screen earlier. This is from one of my favorite books, The War of Art, written by Stephen Pressfield, who, who wrote the novel The Legend of Bagger Vance. You ever saw the film with uh, Will Smith and Matt Damon? And he, he talks about fear... Uh, fear can actually be an indicator for something. And uh, so in, in this book, he, he says, you know, anytime you seek to, to impart in any sort of endeavor, whether you're wanting to start a restaurant, you're wanting to write a symphony, you are going to encounter resistance. And resistance looks like a lot of different things. But one of the things that resistance can look like that will prevent you from those things is fear. And so he says, are you paralyzed with fear? That's a good sign, like self-doubt, Fear is an indicator. Fear tells us what we have to do. Jack Black, in an interview talking about being an actor, he says that fear is the secret sauce. He says if he gets a role and he's kind of afraid of how this role might challenge him, he presses into that. So um, fear can be toxic, but fear can also be an indicator of maybe something deeper for each of us. And so that's what we want to explore tonight. The imagination, what has God called us to do? And then how can fear... Uh, reveal itself to perhaps show us something deeper about the nature of, of, of how we work and the way in which we work. So tonight is going to be really just a few things. Um, uh, Frank's going to come up and he's going to lay the theological framework for work. And then after that, we're going to have three sort of extended all-of-life interviews from uh, three different folks who are doing some really interesting stuff. And they're going to talk about these components, fear and imagination, and then we're going to end with a Q&A. We don't really know how tonight is going to go. Um, the stories are really fascinating and compelling. It's been so great just, just getting to know uh, the different speakers tonight. I'm really excited. Uh, but it's sort of an open-ended topic, if you will. So we're going to explore this and um, probably ask more questions than give more answers, which a lot of times can be a really good thing. So let me pray for us tonight, and then Frank is going to come up. Father, um, it's just a privilege to be here um, with all these brothers and sisters to dig deeper into your word, uh, into your truth. And uh, I pray that you will lead us tonight. Show us where you want us to go. 
Um, I pray that we'll be inspired, challenged, and, and compelled to love and serve you uh, even more in the marketplace. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Thanks, Chad. Um, I say this a lot, and I say it because I think it's, it's foundationally true, and we need to uh, just go as deep as we can into this. I think that without an understanding of the first three chapters of Genesis, we're going to struggle in understanding anything else in life, and we're going to struggle to understand the rest of Scripture if we can't understand Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Uh, but uh, one of the areas that we're going to struggle to understand without Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is work, and a lot of people don't realize that. Um, there was work in the garden before original sin, before the fall. A lot of people actually think, theologically, that work is a result of original sin, that we didn't have to do that. But but God created Adam and Eve and put them in the garden to work it. And, and he gave them these wonderful resources that he had created. And he said, it, it's, a lot of people call it the creation mandate. Now you are going to become creators out of the things that God has created, but you're going to become creators now. You're, you're going you're gonna to create things. You're going to make things. You're, you're going um, to build cultures in whatever area that might be, whether it's agriculture, eventually medicine, technology, whatever that is, we're creating, um, and, and we are creating culture. And it was good, and it was wonderful. And before the fall, there was this ethic of generosity, that everything that was going to be made was going to be a blessing to everything else and everyone else. That was the idea. Genesis 1 and 2 uh, surrounded in an ethic of blessing and generosity. But then Genesis 3 comes, and the original sin. And one of the, one of the three areas of curses that God lays out is this area of work, this area of vocation. Uh, now work becomes toilsome and hard, and, and uh, we're not going to like it all the time. And yet, God has created us to work, and there's the tension. And that's why I think this discussion of fear and imagination is so important. Uh, unfortunately, since Genesis 3, the ethic of generosity has really been replaced by an ethic of greed and of coveting and of jealousy. And it's hard for us to let go of what it is that we get in return for our work. That's one of the primary uh, challenges with the curse that came in Genesis 3 is that when we get that paycheck, rather than feeling generous about it, we feel like we need to hoard it. We need to keep it. It's ours. We, we sweated for it. We ate dirt for it. And so we have that challenge. And, and that challenge is driven a lot by the negative side of fear, which, which uh, Chad talked about tonight. We're, we're afraid. I think since the curse, there are two things that generally motivate us. And they can motivate us well, and they can, they can motivate us in, in really negative ways. Uh, and, and they are fear. Fear motivates us. Fear motivates us to run. Fear motivates us to sin. Fear motivates us to deceive. Fear motivates us into pride. Fear motivates us 
motivates us into false humility, but fear can also motivate us in really helpful ways, as, as Chad has talked about. Um, if you're not afraid, maybe what you're doing isn't worthwhile. Uh, I, I think this quote that you have from Stephen Pressman is one that I want to use in my public speaking classes now, because everybody's afraid to give their, their public speeches at, in, in college. They hate it. I have more students drop the class that week when they have to give their speeches than any other week. They, they will drop the class, lose their tuition, and, and, and get an F in the class because they don't want to get up and stand in front of people for six minutes. But that, that's just life, and it should be motivating them towards trying to do well, as a matter of fact. And people will tell you that, that a lot of that fear, that kind of fear, is born of, of adrenaline, which is actually good. It's, it's a performance drug for us. We need it in order to perform well. And so there are excellent sides of fear. Fear helps us to analyze and to discern and to think and to seek wisdom. And so we have that. The other thing that I think motivates us since the curse is that God has created us with a sense of holiness, with a sense of righteousness, with a sense of justice, and with a sense of goodness. Um, very generally speaking, in Ecclesiastes 3, God's, uh, Solomon says that uh, God has placed eternity in our hearts. And I think that that's a way of saying that, that we, we understand that there is, there is holiness, there is intimacy, there is righteousness, there is justice. We don't see it clearly now because of the corruption of sin, but there is that possibility. We had it in Genesis 1 and 2. The gospel comes along and gives us an even clearer glimpse of that reality. It's not a complete glimpse. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13 that we still, even in the gospel, we see through a glass darkly, but we see that this is a reality, the redemption, the beauty, the recreation, the restoration. And that is something that can motivate us too, a motivation towards holiness and to righteousness and to justice, which is driven very often by imagination, which, as, as Chad, I think, rightly described it, imagination described or defined as God's call on our lives and the specific way that he's wired us and gifted us. And that's where our imagination is supposed to play out. And it's hard. You're right, it's really hard. But it's a beautiful thing, and it can be a beautiful thing. And we can take the gospel into the marketplace. I, I, I saw this tweet, and, and I liked it. I mean, I, it's really limited, but I really liked it. Um, if, if there's a carpenter attending your church, he doesn't necessarily need to hear every week about his moral failings. Occasionally, he needs to hear that he, me, he needs to make really good tables and chairs, that that's his call in the gospel. And that's, and that's something that's driven a lot by imagination, this call and the way God enables us. Uh, we can be a part of redeeming the marketplace by taking our faith through fear and imagination into uh, the marketplace. I'm just finishing up a book. Uh, it's uh, uh, Nicholas Carr's latest book. It's called The Glass Cage. Highly recommend it. Uh, he talks about a lot of things in there. Primarily, it's about how our culture has moved from mechanization to automation. And it's moved from uh, machines doing physical labor for us to machines actually thinking for us. And what does that look like and what does it mean? What are some of the downsides? But one of the things that he cites in this book 
is the preponderance of research that shows, uh, he's not a Christian, but this certainly sounds like the biblical story, that shows that what human beings desire in order to make us happy and feel fulfilled is usually the wrong thing. And, and, and he uses work specifically as an example. How many people are running around at work trying to figure out how to hit that number so that they can retire and never have to work? How many people are doing that? Because they believe that's where happiness and fulfillment uh, is going to reside. And then you run into those people who hit that number and they are able to get into that environment where they don't have to report to anybody, they have all this freedom, they have the money to do whatever they want to do. It's wonderful, usually for four to six months. And then they realize that their sense of fulfillment and happiness was actually back there because we were created to work. Now, I'm not saying that's not a message for you to not retire. What I'm saying is that if you're looking for retirement to bring you fulfillment and happiness, look where you already are because you can find it there. And that's what I'm hoping we can figure out tonight, even in the midst of some of the challenges from these three people that you're going to hear about. Okay? All right. Uh, Aaron, come on up. So our um, first presenter, um, Frank and I had a number of conversations. He said, you, you've got to get together with, uh, um, yeah, I'm going to take one of those mics over there. Got to get together with Aaron and, and hear his story, and yep. uh, so it took a little bit. And finally, when we we, we kind of coordinated our schedules. It was almost like a bad blind date because it's like I I I'd never met this guy before, and we're like you know gonna meet up in this coffee shop, and I was I was texting someone like I actually don't know what Aaron looks like, so I'm just looking around this coffee shop. I went up to this one man, I'm like, are you Aaron? No, you're not Aaron. So <laughs> it was funny. Um, so, uh, Aaron, if you can, um, I think start with uh, your journey into what you're doing yeah. started with kind of initial career in baseball. Yeah. And there was an interesting transition from where you started to kind of where you ended up. And it seemed like that was sort of unexpected. You didn't know, yeah. think that was going to happen. Yeah. So I think it's kind of an interesting place to start. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, quickly born and raised here in Phoenix, grew up 20th Street in Glendale, Madison School Districts, Brophy, um, Arizona State for baseball. So yeah, as uh, Chad said, baseball was kind of a first career for me. Um, became a Christian freshman year at uh, Arizona State through FCA. Uh, Tyler Johnson's a really good friend of mine. Brian Berger, some other uh, Tyler Heads Up Redemption Global or whatever he called it now. Um, um, but uh, I mean, part of it is, I mean, I struggled. I, I was... I always wanted to be the best baseball player in the world. I mean, literally, I found notebooks, like digging through old closets of like, um, like keeping track of my, like I'd work out at like 4 a.m. before fifth grade. Like we had a little gym at our house and I'd work out and I always wanted to be the best baseball player in the world. So um, for me, it was, um, baseball was a huge idol um, and um, struggled a lot with becoming a Christian. Um, I was always driven, I was driven before I even know what I was driving towards. And so it was really weird to, I think when you talked about ambition and purpose and struggled a bunch with figuring out what drive looks like in a career and in a sport. And so um, struggled, played professionally with the Dodgers a little bit, but really struggled with, okay, how do you pursue a sport and try and be great and be a good pitcher and be someone your coach wants to put in and um, 
I always felt like you were kind of selling your soul to the devil anytime you were kind of going after the sport. So it was um, transitioning out of baseball into the marketplace was huge, just massive broken theology of God and work. And so I think it was just through a lot of dislocations of like, I got to, you know, figure this thing out. And, um, you know, you come to the marketplace, you deal with money every day. And I knew, you know, money wasn't the end all be all, but you deal with it every day. So I'm like this, you know, you have to start figuring this out pretty quick. Yeah. So, so um, you transition into um, to another career. Yeah. Um, what got you into yeah. doing that? Yeah. And then what are some of the projects that you've worked on that you've really loved? Because yeah. you've had your hand in kind of a variety of different projects, but are there, there are there a handful that you'd say, these are some that I've, I've really have loved being part of? Yeah, um, and ask questions to keep me on track. Because I think um, was to- uh, I think one thing that I look back, um, huge believer in, I mean, I think if I was to tell my kid, my kid's like, oh, I want to be the best, whatever. Go find, if he wants to be the best baseball player, go beg, borrow, and steal to train with an all-star because you realize even in professional ranks of anything, like the talent gaps are small, but how they process the information between the years is really where you see people excel. Um, so I think that was, um, um, you know, kind of a big component um, for me and ask um, I'm losing my train yeah, of thought so, a little bit. Yeah, so what, so what are you doing now? What, what's, yeah. what, how'd you get into the work that you're doing now, and what is it that you're doing now? Yeah, so retail development primarily is what I do, um, but I'm wired a lot like a private investor. So venture capital, a lot of times people think that's technology and Elon Musk type stuff, but it can be brick-and-mortar businesses and restaurants and yeah. some of that stuff. So what, are, what are some of the businesses that you've, you've helped to, to develop? Yeah, so I mean, like anybody, you're blessed by amazing partnerships, and I think that's what I was kind of sharing earlier. I was I was fortunate coming out of baseball. God gave enough wisdom to, you know, I didn't know what I wanted to do other than, for me, fundamentals of business were key, but I liked doing it in different things, and I had an unbelievable, um, you know, mentor, friend, almost second father, a guy named Bert Hyenga, a uh, longtime business owner here in the Valley, um, connected with him and um, and I think just started to learn more of an entrepreneurial skill set kind of early. Yeah. And that just started to blossom and bloom into lots of different things over the years. So um, he heads up a big group. I'm a small partner, but we have a bunch of Dunkin' Donuts here um, in the Valley, um, kind of in some of the restaurant stuff, started a concept called Zoyo Neighborhood Yogurt with some partners. We have like 21 of them now. CEO uh, Robert Schiller is running that. Um, One of the things that we had talked yeah. about was seeing a concept for a yeah. business and helping helping that that entrepreneur yeah. take it to the next level. Yeah. Almost feels a little bit like Shark Tank, but I don't mean to dumb it down. But so so what what is that for you? You the, kind of the passion and the vision that you have for that. That, that seems like a sort yeah. of a burning drive for you. I mean, I don't know. It's probably like in anyone's profession, you just, you see things and you do it and you don't really overthink it a ton. So I do think a lot of business ventures start from seeing a need, seeing an opportunity, wanting to do something good and almost starts kind of like an initiative, if you would. And it, you know, to put it in a business context can put a lot of pressure on it. But if you're passionate about something, start it and, you know, take some small steps and Sometimes it turns into a business, and sometimes it fails miserably. (laughs) What have you done, uh, you would say, recently in starting a project, and 
and not knowing or wondering how this thing is going yeah. to turn out. So a any stories of something you, you've been a part no, of recently? No, there's, yeah, a recent one, which I literally have no clue where it's going um, or if it'll succeed. It's uh, Neighborhood Initiatives Water. It's NI Water. You see it at some places around here. It's got a blue water drop, and it says NI. And I struggled a lot because some of our restaurants, you're always trying to improve your beverage margin and sales. And I mean, call it what it is. Water is a total commodity today. I mean, it's everywhere, whether you color it black or put it in a box or say that you get it from the bottom of the ocean. I mean, it's it's, like, it's kind of a joke. So <laughs> I kind of thought it, it was interesting, though, but I'm like, what if you re-engineered it thinking through the whole value proposition of bringing value to the constituents in any business transaction, right? You have community, you have customers, you have business owners. And so I was interesting of it's so commoditized that I'm like, okay, I mean, water should kind of, you know, buy local, give local, the whole local movement. Like how can you kind of keep dollars as close to the source as possible? You know, so you kind of think through, um, I mean, it is a challenge. The more consolidated business organizations get and the more they consolidate in other cities, I mean, tax dollars leave, you know, Phoenix. And so you do kind of think through, okay, how can you keep dollars here locally? And I'm like, well, man, I wonder if you somehow could get like half the profit to stay close by. And then it's like, well, maybe what if you let the business decide their, you know, nonprofit or initiative. And, um, and so it's kind of reverse engineering the whole value exchange. And I'm like, this seems really powerful. I mean, who would freaking start a water company? I mean, it's a commodity. So it'd be like one of the, my brain's like, this seems really st stupid to do it, but I feel like I see something, so at least test it. Um, Let's talk about that yeah. for a moment, because you had mentioned yeah. to me this idea of, of testing things, but testing the value of something, yeah. and knowing that things might work out or yeah. things might not work out. And I think for a lot of folks, that's a place where it's like, I don't know if I can afford to do yeah. something like that, whether it's just by reputation. Yeah. I put myself out yeah. there, and it's, am I gonna look silly yeah. by doing this? Is this going to lose a yeah. lot of money? So. Yeah. What, the, what has that been like for you, you know, trying a number of different ventures like yeah. this? Well, I learned it a lot in baseball because, I mean, I wanted baseball so bad that it had a, it was an idol. It was a very distorted love in my life, and I put too much focus on it. For me, you know, that sounds weird because it's just a sport. For another person, it may be a future wife. It may be a job, whatever. For, it's different for other people. But for me, it was, um, I always remember watching especially as you get up into professional ranks, like the talent gaps are really small. And then you see, why is the guy, why is this guy become an all-star and this guy's a, you know, a double A baseball player. And it was, you know, guys you can think of, 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 you pick the sport, whether it's a Tom Brady or a David Ortiz or what I've loved more about sports is the, the magnitude of the professionalism is like the quotes talk about and the maturity to where uh, moments don't get bigger than the, the people, and I think I remember watching a lot of, um, Dustin Pedroia was a teammate, great example, second baseman for the Red Sox, and I always remember him like, he was small, he always had a chip on his shoulder, and I'm like, this guy approaches the game different than I've ever seen anybody do it, and plays with a freedom. And so I remember, I think, having not been able to play with that freedom, thinking through like, you know, loves and idols play into fear big time, because- How so? Know, well, it's just anything. I mean, you think of money is a great example because it, it probably gets, you know, most of the focus. But, you know, greed is discussed with the one side of the coin a lot, but fear is really the flip side of the same coin. So I know a lot of people that don't have a lot of money that would look and point fingers at a lot of wealthy people that 
are scared to death of losing it. They actually love it more than a lot of people I know that may have a ton of it that I would say are way freer um, when it comes to the, you know, money as a context. So a lot of times risk, you really have to unpack. Why are you afraid to, why are you afraid to fail? What, it's rarely about the financial loss. Um, a friend of mine's a, a, a former trader. He used to say the best stock traders, it's, you know, when $50,000 becomes a vehicle and you attach it to a vehicle, now you're scared to lose that 50,000. But it's really just, it's, it's a resource, it's a tool, it's somewhat neutral. And I think a lot of times risk, processing risk is a lot of, a lot of times just really unpacking what you're scared of. And most often it's, I'm really just afraid of what my friends are gonna think if I fail or what happens if I have to help sell my house. And to be totally honest, this, living in an apartment, we have four boys, I'm like, I told my wife, it'd probably be pretty awesome to just be in a one room apartment with our four boys. We'd probably have some sweet memories. A lot of bunk beds. <laughs> yeah. So has there ever been a time where you you have you have had the fear, whether it's within yourself or people that you're partnering with? What did it look like? And oh, totally. I what mean, what did one, you have to overcome, or what did you work through? It's frightening. I mean, you talk about it, it's it's one of those things you think you overcome it perfectly. I mean, totally transparent. I mean, this week has been um, the past four mornings. It's literally like to a T. Wake up at three o'clock. I usually get up early, but when I know I'm stressed, I wake up at three o'clock and I, I talk to a lot of business owners and just a lot of people in general. It's it's interesting to know that the, that time when you wake up is your most illogical, at least I know for me, it's like when panic sets in the most, it's when you first wake up because your brain's coming out of a sleep. You don't have any bearings. You don't have any reality of context, of proximity and information. So you start freaking out. Um, but that's, you know, it's like training. It's it's real time. You're you're figuring out. So yeah, this week's been three mornings in a row waking up at three o'clock because yeah. there's stressful stuff going on. And what do you co are you are you are you coaching yourself kind of through this to use totally. a baseball metaphor? Totally. No, it's like it? yeah, it's you know, pastoring yourself by speaking the stupid stuff I tell my kids of like you know on the way to school. It's you know, be strong and courageous. All the, like the little you know Sunday school verses of. You know, and in some seasons it works great. And yeah, I've had, you know, there's one business lost, it was losing like 20,000 a month and I'd never been in a position like that, nor did I feel, you know, if you'd have told me I was gonna lose it, I would say I'd be done. And you know, God totally provided, but it was horrific. I mean, yeah. it was waking up, closest thing to, I mean, I don't stress out, I guess, easily, but the closest thing to like, there's gonna be a breakdown, it's gonna be somewhat soon. <laughs> wow. Um, well, I get the sense that yeah. you, despite this, that you love what you do, yeah. that you're, you're really passionate and yeah. driven, and there's a lot of ways that you're engaged with the businesses that um, and it kind of seems similar in a coaching role with the businesses yeah. that you're helping people yeah. kind of move along. So you've got your fear at times potentially yeah. and their fear as well. And you made a really compelling statement to me, talked about how the brevity of life and that you should pursue what you're passionate about. What, what do you have to say to that? I mean, in the no, midst of, yeah. of opportunity and risk, yeah. there's this as well. It's just, a lot of times it's just context. I mean, I'm a, I love Ecclesiastes. I mean, I think, I think for me that's just been an awesome book. And sometimes you just have to go walk through a cemetery and just read tombstones and you realize like, you know, 
win or lose, whether you build a, you know, whether you're Bill Gates and you build an empire, the world's going to forget about you. And whether you're, a, you know, the other end of the spectrum, homeless on the street, I mean, the world forgets about you regardless. Everything you wake up and you stress about, you know, you're building pyramids that are going to, we long to be immortal in all of our drives. But the reality is, I think sometimes you just have to, all the proverbial wisdom of think much about death. I mean, there's a lot of wisdom in that contextual orientation of, you know, older people are, are wise a lot of times because, you know, they're seeing the, the second half vantage point of life and there's a lot of clarity on realizing like a lot of what we stress about is good or bad doesn't amount to much. So I think a lot of times, um, it frees you up to realize or forces you to be like, okay, then what's really the, the purpose every day when you get up and you realize the common thread is people. I mean, it's, I deal with people everywhere you go, pastors, any profession, you're, you're dealing with relationships and, you know. I loved what you, you told yeah. your kids, like look to bring value. Yeah. How, how has yeah. that been a driving force? No, we have a fun thing with our kids because sometimes these, these contexts or these complicated things can be and so it, we every day we just say you, today you can wake up you can be a hero or a villain and every day I drop them off at school I'm like hero or a villain because we all have superpowers and you can use them to build yourself and you can take resources from a community and you can you know think of your spider-man movies or whatever context you go to villains rape and pillage communities and take value and heroes you know think of others they add value and um, so for the for our kids, it's been fun because it's conceptualizes a ton in a very simple thing. But in reality, um, yeah, we just try to wake up every day and add value, you know. And you'll always be in demand. And I think that's what fascinates me with God's design of an economic system is it's it responds to value. So if you make a crappy chair, you're going to be out of business, <laughs> you know. If you uh, if you add value to your partners, you add value to your customers, and I think just Anytime the marketplace gets inward oriented and starts thinking through profit as a as a means of self, not to call it the commoditization of America, but I mean, look at the Walmart effect or whatever. It, we've driven stuff so f far down to I think a bottom line where you're just seeing kind of crappy stuff everywhere, and you see this resurgence of craftsmen that you're willing to pay more for a chair because it's you know it's a higher quality chair and I just I love that's what I love about God's design of an economy is it's fragile yet it's it's pretty simple you add value you're going to stay valuable and you know if you stop thinking about how you add value to your employer or your boss or partners you're gonna find yourself on the outside looking in pretty quick it's great word so. Before we close out, Aaron, um, is there any way that we can be praying for you as a congregation for your work, for your yeah. family, just anything that comes to mind? Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, without all the, like, the typical normal stuff of, you know, um, boys that are breaking everything and not listening to us <laughs> and <laughs> horrible dads and horrible furniture. parents. Yeah. Yes. Um, just, yeah, just wisdom, and, and I think um, everyone's struggle is to have, pers you know, have that eternal, wise perspective in the busyness of the day's troubles, and, you know, just to not 
get too wrapped up in self and you know be there for your family and be there for others awesome yeah awesome well aaron thank you so yeah. much we really yeah. appreciate it all right um thank you aaron All right, next up is Melissa Balkin. Uh, Melissa is a designer, business owner, brand strategist, um, and is also a uh, deaconess at our church. And so um, excited to talk to you about um, just how you got into what you're doing and um, uh, the unique collaborations that you've had in helping businesses find their voice. So can you first talk about just what it is that you do, and how did you get into, into this kind of work? Sure. Um, <clears throat> I'm a graphic designer, and I specialize in helping businesses create their brands and then extending those brands out to their marketing collateral, their website, things like that. So um, my path to getting there was relatively linear. It's what I went to school for. Um, I was talking to Chad before this. Um, he was asking me how I decided to go to school for that. Um, when I was in high school, I was considering going into like drafting or something like that. I've always been like somebody who loves creative things and I remember coloring and drawing a lot as a kid. And so I was taking those classes and I started to realize that you need to be pretty good in math and science, which I'm horrible at both of those. Um, and we had one week of graphic design, <laughs> which looking back at it was really a Why joke. just one week? But I don't know. I don't know. We, like we just week. used like Microsoft Publisher okay. or something. It was ridiculous. But I was like hooked. I went home and I would like did it for hours <laughs> that whole week. And so I went to the guidance counselor. I'm like, what's this whole commercial artist thing? Because that's what they were yeah. used to be called, commercial artist. But no, wh what are they called? Designer. Graphic designer. Well, and the industry with like the internet becoming this you know huge force in our lives there's now all these like subsets i still call myself a graphic designer but like there's like a lot of iterations of graphic designer whether it's a user experience designer interface designer or website designer or brand designer or production designer there's a lot of different versions yeah. but a lot of us have it comes back to the same skill set it's like it's creatively solving problems so so uh, you're a brand strategist along with that. Basically, yeah. So, so talk, about, talk about what that is in the context of, because I don't know if everyone is familiar with what that entails, sure. your work, and, and working with businesses to help them communicate their brand. Sure. Um, so as a brand strategist, I um, work with my clients to basically define who they are as an organization and then like strategically create like a system of visuals and in some cases messaging that helps communicate that to their customers and their audience and things like that. Um, and for me, branding is important is because in this day, the, the internet age again, it's like insanely easy to start a business. Like didn't used to be near as easy to start a business, but you can start a business in a weekend if you want to now. Um, but with that comes a lot of clutter, a lot of noise. And so branding helps it helps a couple different ways. First of all, it helps the business owner get clear on why they're doing what they're doing. Um, there's kind of that whole strategy piece. But then the other work that I'm doing is helping them kind of define themselves like visually, like how they communicate and what sets them apart from others. So terrific. Yeah. Um, so being a small business owner, how, how did you decide that you wanted to have your own business? And then what were what were some of the challenges that you found along the way, specifically 
were you afraid at all in doing this? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start my yes. own business and yes, the I implications was of that. <laughs> yeah, I was really afraid. I'm actually the first person in my family to ever be self-employed. Okay. Um, so I got a lot of, how are you going to afford health insurance? I'm like, mom, I do not need this negativity. <laughs> um, but so the kind of the path to how I got here is um, I was freelancing basically immediately out of school. Okay. Um, I think I probably had freelance work before I even had an actual job. Um, but and did I, you know early on you wanted to, to own no, your own business? No, it's just, just kind of just stumbled into just doing some stuff on the side. Pretty much every designer you know probably does something on the side, whether they have an actual freelance business on the side or not. Like they're doing something for their uncle or, <laughs> you know, they're doing something on the side. Um, so I got a couple freelance projects and I got a job pretty pretty quickly out of school and worked there for two years. That's when I moved here. Um, worked at a handful of different places here in the Valley. Um, and as I was working at those jobs, I was just kind of taking on more freelance work. Actually, fun fact, I had freelance here where I knew no one before I had a job. <laughs> Somebody took a chance on me and like let me work for them. <laughs> freelance. So um, as my career was growing, I guess you'd say, I was freelancing more and more and more, and eventually it kind of started to be like, you know, it'd be super cool to do this all the time and not have to, you know, go sit in a cubicle and answer to somebody else and stuff like be that. Your own boss. So, yeah. yeah. Um, but because no, I didn't really have anyone super close to me that had done that, it was kind of petrifying to think about that. Um, so I just kept doing it on the side. Um, I ended up with an amazing job that momentarily dissuaded me from the idea of working for myself, but eventually I got back to, I think I want to work for myself. Um, and uh, I just kept working on the side. Eventually I was making more money on the side than it was at my job. And so that started to like make me think, this might actually work. Like This is a path I should probably go yeah, down. Yeah, and I was wanting to do it so bad. And, and to talk about that fear, m like I said, my mom was a little like, how are you going to have health insurance? How are you going to do this? How are you going to do that? And I got to a point where I literally said these words to her, mom, I think I have to do this and I might fail at it, but I need you to get on board and stop pointing out reasons not to do it and start helping me find solutions of how I can do it. And I was like, I might in three months like hate this and it might be miserable or it could be amazingly successful. Who knows? But you so, knew it was something that you had to do. Yeah, I knew it was something I had to do and I felt like um, kind of the experiment of doing it on the side was starting to give me the evidence that there was probably a good chance I could be successful yeah. at it. So, did that answer? It did. Okay. So <laughs> your, your name, uh, Strong Design. Yeah. What's the meaning behind that? And what would you say this is, if there's a vision or mission statement for, for the work that you do? Because sure. there's, in talking, there's a, there's a particular passion, it seems, that you have as you work with businesses to help them develop their voice, their brand. Yeah, okay, so you're not really going to like where the name came from. But okay. I have a good story to finish <laughs> it up. <laughs> so I actually named this business when I was still in college. Uh, we had to, as part of like our senior capstone, we had to like create a brand identity for ourselves. And at that point in time, I was super into weightlifting. So that's where Strong Design came from. I was super into weightlifting. Awesome. <laughs> Not to CrossFit or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, but since then, I've kind of... So you kinda, can bench press the well, businesses and your I clients. used to. Yes. Not anymore. I'm kind of a weakling now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but a few years ago, I kind of set out to kind of rebrand myself. Like, I've rebranded myself, like, at least five times. 
throughout my business. Um, so there's a lesson, you're always growing and changing. <laughs> but at some point, I set out to rebrand, and I really considered, should I keep this name or should I not keep this name? This name. Um, my clients seemed to really like it. They seemed to really be drawn to it. Um, and so I actually decided to keep it, obviously. Um, but I kind of got like a renewed um, concept behind it, um, which actually came to me in a church service back in Michigan, which is where I'm from. Um, they were talking about, um, I actually don't remember how this related to the sermon, but they were talking about the Olympics and um, about winning and competing and things like that. And I started to feel like that could be a metaphor because kind of what I see as my purpose is helping other small businesses win in the marketplace. Um, it can be, I work primarily with quite small businesses, uh, mainly because I like to work with CEOs, because I like to work with the person casting the vision for the business. And usually if you work with a large organization, it's pretty tough to get at the CEO. Yeah. You're working through some committee and your concept gets lost in translation and I don't like that, so. Um, but yeah, so like I wanna like come alongside these business owners and basically help them compete in a market that's like so, oversaturated and things like that, help them clarify their vision, give them guidance and advice on things they might not really understand or know to consider and things like that. That's terrific. So I'm sure as you've worked and partnered and collaborated, you've seen, you've seen fear there. Oh yeah. Whether it's with your clients, I know working with clients can be a very demanding, taxing thing, perhaps even within yourself. So what immediately comes to mind for you? What are, what are some of those examples that you've seen that you've had to, to work with and work through? Um, so a lot of my clients, they have a big fear of doing something different, which is, I mean, <laughs> like we all have fear around doing something different. I know I have some kind of unique practices in my business and it takes me a while to kind of get over that fear hump when I want to release one of those. Um, but like all of clients that will come to me and they're paying me a good amount of money to help them brand their organization, but they're like, are we sure we wanna use those colors? Like all of our competitors use blue, shouldn't we use blue? I'm like, no, the whole reason you're paying me this money is to help you stand out, you know? Like not look the same and be the same. Um, kinda even more so sometimes, like we do this whole exercise where we walk through like purpose and values as an organization and like their style as an organization. And one of the ways I think I add value, um, lots of times these are things that come out of them, like I can't tell them what they value, right? But something I can do to add value for them is um, I'm an impartial party, and so lots of times I see things between the lines that they don't see, and um, so I try to like really encourage them to like grab on to things that are differentiators, things they believe strongly in, even if like they're in, if, even if that's not a norm in their industry, um, you know, I'm always kind of preaching that whole like, it's okay to have a niche, it's okay for people to hate you, any strong organization, any strong business, like you have, you're gonna have like lovers and you're gonna have haters. If you don't have any haters, you're probably not taking a strong enough stance, so. That's terrific. Does that, has that emboldened them as you've worked with them in that kind of framework and, and philosophy? I hope so. Yeah. Uh, they usually react pretty good to it, like, yeah, you're right, that makes sense. Now, whether or not they all like actually take that vice and really do anything with it, but I think in the moment it makes them excited. Yeah. So So as a, as a business owner, there's, you know, there's no net underneath there. I mean, this is, yeah. this is your venture, this is, this is your baby. So 
what kind of fears have been there for you personally? And then how has, perhaps how has your faith, how has that spoken into that as sure. you've worked, as you've developed? Because I know there's also a desire, as we've talked about, creating other businesses too. So, you know, keeping what you're doing and also launching other ventures mm -hmm. along with that. What was the or beginning question? So let's, yeah, there was kind of a lot that was <laughs> there. There were a lot of questions in that yeah. statement. <laughs> so just for yourself, have there been examples of, of perhaps fear and just running your own business, you know, not having that proverbial safety net, if you sure. will? Yeah. Well, there was the initial fear, like I was talking to you about, like the initial, like, doing it. Um, but since then, there have been various waves of fear. There always are. Um, almost every year, I have a slump for like a month or two. Uh, Mark Hansen knows a lot about this because I come to small group and pray for leads. <laughs> and then the next time I'm at small group, I say, tell God to stop the work. I have too much work. Feast or famine, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So there's generally that fear that kind of goes on. Um, and I kind of counteract that by, well, trying to be like a good steward of the resources I am given. Um, and kind of plan for the future and just kind of know that there's instability in my work. Um, but kind of a sidebar is we all have instability in our work. Like it's just kind of hidden more because sure. we go to employers. But ultimately you have just as much instability as I have because all your employer's clients could pull out tomorrow too. So, <laughs> so I try to remind myself of that, that I'm actually not that different from everybody. It's really true. Um, I also like look back a lot to um, other situations God has carried me through. Um, I'm in my sixth year of business right now, and there have been a lot of different times where I'm like, I don't know where my work's coming from. Like, literally, I have zero work right now, or things like that. And somehow, God always comes through, and his timing is perfect. Like, I remember one year, I was doing this huge volunteer uh, project, and it was like, quite literally, almost killing me. It was taking so much of my time. And my work got really slow, and I was freaking out about it. And funny how God gave me work the week after that event happened. Wow. And it was like he knew I couldn't take any more. And I didn't know that, but <laughs> I thought I needed more work. Uh, but he knew I did not need more work. So um, there have been a lot of stories like that that I just try to, like, pay attention to and catalog in my brain and go back and think about it. And, you know, think about in the Bible where he says, you know, like, look at how he clothes the flowers. You know, like, he's not going to leave me with nothing like mm -hmm. even if he chooses to take my business and take my house and take everything like there's still people I still have you know who I know will care for me you know like I ultimately have his love which is what matters the most you know so that's really cool so it, it also sounds like just leaning into kind of the spirit behind the name of your business being strong that's great yeah. well Melissa is there any way as a congregation we can be praying for you for your work for your yeah. continued sort of next steps with the additional ventures that you're thinking yeah, through? Yeah, um, I am in constant need of prayer for balance <laughs> because I have a very bad habit of overbooking myself. <laughs> and then I start to, uh, you know, when I don't have any margins and I get like really stingy with my time, really stingy with, you know, everything, which is just bad. So, <laughs> balance. Definitely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much and, and thank you for how you serve our congregation and, uh, pleasure hearing your story. All right. The last presenter is Paul Tyson. And uh, Paul uh, has had a career um, in leadership, management, in the IT space. And um, 
uh, has had sort of a, an interesting season this past year. But we want to start. <laughs> interesting, like covers a multiple a multitude of sins. <laughs> I think that word. Um, so but, interesting, they all want to hear about it. <laughs> what is it? Um, but we wanted to. I'd love to start with first um, how you got into leadership. Um, you've you've led in, in a lot of different settings um, in the IT space, working in construction, um, in that industry. Um, but how you got into leadership and how, that, how your vision, your imagination, if you will, was, was formed in terms of how you thought of yourself as a leader through the years. I thought that was really, really pretty cool when we, when we first met. Um, that's a great question. Um, oh, sorry. Thank you. Um, I knew that some of my comments and my thinking and my thoughts would be informed by the previous two uh, folks that were up here. Um, and thinking about value and what you have to offer the world and uh, what can I do and, and what do people value, uh, it comes down to a certain degree of incompetence. In every technical role that I had, I was never the best guy doing it. And I took on a, a technology career. I went to school for finance. I went to school in business. I knew I had a major in something specific, so I, I went into finance. And uh, I wanted to go conquer the world and make my mark. Uh, and so I moved out to Arizona and I was ready to get a job in banking only to find out that nobody wanted to hire me in banking. So, uh, so I took a job in technology. And I adapted to technology quickly. But as I learned technology and expanded in technology, I quickly realized that it was disposable that the knowledge was disposable and the learning curve was continuous because of the pace of the development of technology. So if you're gonna be a technician or an engineer in, in, in technology, you're gonna be constantly relearning. And I, and I knew that there were people that were much better at that than I was, and, but what I could do was manage them. And so, uh, <laughs> that's right. So I found a space and a place where I had the vision uh, not for building the best technology solution, but building the best organization that could build the best technology solution, and then eventually sustain what was created, because once you create an 800-pound gorilla and put it in a cage, you have to feed it. And so uh, sustaining and optimizing and organizing uh, processes and business became my sort of wheelhouse. That was the value proposition. It was the collection of things in an organization, including the people, the processes that they do, the technology and the tools that they use, and blending that together in a way that was meaningful to the enterprise, to the stockholders, to the customers, and so on. So that was my space. Leadership sort of drew me into it because that was the place I could perform. You had a number of people that have poured into you throughout your career, and you described it to me as, uh, as a leader in the business context. There's, it's, it's really a shepherding role. Hmm. I thought that was really poignant. So can you kind of unpack that, what, how, that how, you, how that was formed in you and, and sort of what that looked like in your, or what that has looked like in your career? Yeah, well, I got that from the gospel. Thank you, Jesus. Uh, <laughs> you know, he, he saved me uh, at 23. Kelly and I were saved together on the same day. Uh, God graciously called us. And as time went on, um, the idea of leading people and leading a flock uh, and providing for them uh, became, uh, I guess, very important to me. 
to live out my faith that way in the environment. You know, in a, I've always been in a business environment, so you're subject to, you know, employment law and, and, and so on. So, um, you know, you have to develop relationships in, in, in order to really share deeply about the gospel. But the one thing you can do is reflect godliness in all that you do and the decisions that you make in the way that you behave and the way that you expect other people to behave. Um, for example, gossip. There's no place for gossip, and sometimes you have to train people for that, and you have to help them understand why it's it's bad. Yeah. And uh, and sometimes you have to lead people to cooler waters and, and greener pastures um, if they've had leadership that's been abusive, right? So if you're going to perform for a customer and you're going to perform consistently, then you need to take care of the people that are providing for that customer. It's like Dave Ramsey says, the most yeah. important asset that we have is the people that we work with. Yeah, right. So shepherding them, caring for them really became my primary uh, interest. Right. And I know that, that throughout the years, the quality and the excellence of the work has mattered, but the relationships have mattered so much. And this, this, this past season, um, you really built in and created something. And then there was a transition that took place. So would love to start that story because it's it's led you into uh, just a really compelling time frame right now. Yeah. So uh, t 10 years ago or so, 10, 11 years ago, I started on with a, a construction firm in town. And uh, they hired me on the executive team to uh, clean up the, the technology department because the people weren't shepherded, the customers weren't happy. So we, uh, we did a healing there. And uh, <laughs> over time, uh, I was known as the turnaround guy. And uh, so I established uh, a very good reputation there, and the business began to, to flourish, not because of my contribution, but um, because of the marketplace. And uh, the contributions I made enabled more of that to, to take place. So the business tripled, almost quadrupled in size. And you get drawn up into that, that growth, and, and uh, my world turned from eight people to 50 people, it seemed like overnight. And, uh, but midway in there, I had this wonderful shepherding boss, and I have been privileged, you did mention mentors, I've been privileged to have some really incredible uh, bosses. And uh, in fact, one of the things, uh, I, I digress, but uh, one of the formulas I've always had is be the boss you always wanted to have. That's really good. Yeah. yeah, and that's what I would teach my managers. Just be the boss, what's the formula? Be the boss you wanna have, and you're, you're probably on track. And uh, so w what happened is this whole thing developed and we took some really big investments in technology and I designed those, um, presented those, sold those, um, got the business to agree to invest in that in, in you know, tens of millions of dollars and we did all of that and so I put it all on the line but we were successful and, uh, and we helped the business grow and we did a lot of great things. In that process, I, there was a period of time where I went through three different CEOs in a span of four years. And you're, you're trying to, to be part of a, a leadership team, executive team for a business that's just tripled in size, all of the new customers, all of these technology changes, it's constant churn in the organization. Now we have constant churn uh, at the leadership ranks and the personalities. And, and the, the last one, the vision that I had for extending technology and adding value was not the vision that the CEO could share. 
and so we had to separate. And it was very difficult because that was it was my idea. Yeah. But when the day came down and they put a document in front of him and say sign here, it suddenly didn't feel like a good idea. <laughs> and uh, uh, and uh, as much as we say our identity is in Christ, right? Um, is it? So that was really challenging for me because I felt like I lost a whole family and I didn't know what I was going to do. Because you deeply cared with, for the people I, that you were. This with. was my, these were my people. Yeah. And, uh, and so one day I'm there and literally the next day I'm not. And I was there and I was with them for 10 years. That was all I knew. That was all I knew is how to run an organization. So then you have to go through this process of what am I going to go do? Well, I'm going to take a little bit of time off. So you tell people, well, you know, I'm going to take a little time off. I earned it. And, uh, and, and then you're like, well, am I going to go get another job? Am I going to interview? Does anybody want to hire me? Um, am I going to start a business? Do I want to be a consultant? Do I want to find partners? What do I, you know, though I could do a lot of different things. Um, but uh, I spent a, a year trying to figure that out, literally. So I don't want to talk too much more until you, unless you want to. Yeah, no, this is, but it's really good. It's so really I, I grieved a lot, right, on the one side. Um, and I really was challenged with where's my identity. And uh, because it is in my people, is it in the status of my executive position? You know, is it my reputation at church among the community of people here? that see me through a certain lens? Is it with Kelly and, and even my own family? So there's, you know, you grieve a lot, then you have your pride thing sets in, and then fear of what's my value proposition in the marketplace, and how am I gonna let the world know about that without asking? There was this great pride that came, uh, that was challenged with not being pursued by others at the, at the level that I thought I would. And that's a fear of every guy in business, whether they'll admit it or not, yeah. I guess I'm up here to admit it. <laughs> For me, you know, that fear of not having a value proposition and not being pursued by the marketplace, now what am I gonna do? So that created a, a, a season of transition mm -hmm. and reinvention, if you will. Yeah. So you've, you've transitioned into a new venture. Right. And what has that, what has that felt like? What have been the, the what's been the opportunity and then the, the struggle as well of, of reinventing yourself. Yeah. Um, well, the, the, the business, that, so I invested in a, a technology startup uh, with two other partners, uh, one of whom I've known for, for quite some time and we've talked about joining up and working together in the marketplace. Uh, it never was intended to be a business startup. We thought we were gonna work at the same corporation together, but we both ended up in the same situation. We did a, a technology startup in the software industry, and so we're doing uh, business systems, software uh, implementation and integration for uh, industrial companies, asset-intensive businesses, construction, manufacturing, oil and gas, utilities, power, that sort of thing. And, um, and we're doing it internationally, so it's got some complexity to it. And uh, we have a business plan, and we have some reasons why we think we're different and, 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 and uh, have some tangible things that stick out in the marketplace and there's some trends going on that, that we think that we can capitalize on. So in evaluating whether you want to be an employee um, or you want to uh, and work you know at another company and not have an equity position or be an employee at a company where you do have an equity position there's an upside. So there's an attractiveness to um, 
putting your money in and letting not just the value of your effort uh, create a return, um, but the value of the enterprise as it grows to create a, a return. And so that became very attractive. It's not the first time I've started business or the, or the first time I've thought about business. I, d I dabbled in the past. I opened and closed uh, a contracting business uh, once upon a time. I was part of a small management consulting firm and that lasted for three years and I went back into corporate America. So it's not without a context. Um, it just seemed like this opportunity was substantial, it was, it was tangible, it was doable because we each had different disciplines and skill sets that we could come and we were complementary. We weren't redundant. And uh, so it's a combination of do you have the right partners, are you bringing the right things to the partnership, and is it the right time in your life and in the marketplace to go do it? And I got a lot of yeses to those answers. Um, just enough yeses to all of those that I was, af I wanted to say no, but I was, af I was afraid to. Why are you afraid to? <laughs> because I, there wasn't really a reason to say no, other than fear itself. Yeah. So what is, what does fear look like for you in this, in this journey of, um, of creating this? And how has your faith spoken into that? Well, Fear comes in different forms. What am I going to do with a portion of my life savings? You know, part, part of the fear that we didn't talk about in living a year on severance is I would just get mad at times and fearful because I was not earning. I was not accruing a bonus. I was not earning a paycheck. I was not accruing a bonus. And, I was li and what I had was depleting. Mm. So you look at your future, and uh, that's not a great equation. I'm not ready to live on, on whatever. I don't have enough to live. Um, so as I'm going into this, I'm taking a very small paycheck, so I'm still depleting. But I'm not only depleting, I'm investing. And so there's a big chunk that if it doesn't go well, Kelly, it doesn't come back, right? It doesn't come back. <laughs> and so uh, that is you know, you got to work through that. I mean, I, I came home from Austin, Texas, and I told Kelly, we're moving to Austin. <laughs> you know? I said, you know, eventually. And, and boy, that went into a tailspin, you know. And, <laughs> Surprise. Uh, and uh, so we've had to work through a, what, are the, what are the implications of that. So there's, money is an implication. The other implication uh, of fear is, you know, I heard Aaron say great partners. I think I have picked great partners, but I don't know yet. I'm glad they're not here. I hope we're not. <laughs> Stop record. <laughs> and, you know, have there been some red flags? Somebody in my uh, redemption community was asking me that, you know, recently. Yes. Just enough to have some fear. Yeah. You know? Is the character quality really what it needs to be? And if a guy says he's a believer, you know, and you put him in a corner and he has to make a decision, well, how does he live out his faith? How do I live out my faith? And so it's, it's a real, I guess, exercise of growth. And just every day at 3 a.m., my, my time seems to be 4.45 um, of, you know, waking up and thinking through mm. that. You know, processing that. So there's, you know, the fear of money, the fear of reputation, uh, the fear of, you know, being manipulated or deceived by your own partners. You know, all of those things are very real and palpable at certain times. 
amazing how many faces that that it can take. And um, you know, Frank and I were having this discussion about so what's behind all of it? Like if you were to say like the the the, the motivating force behind fear is the belief that in the end things aren't going to be okay. Whether it's for me, it's for my family, that the the ultimate lie that fear presents itself is that things aren't going to be okay. Like, I'm going to come to ruin, whether that's financial ruin, reputation ruin, and that the, the counterfeit response that we can struggle with is this sense of, I can have everything under control. I can control all things. I can do it. I can, I can get to a place where I can control all things. And all of us find out sooner or later that that's not reality, that that's not true. And yet, you know, as a congregation, perhaps one of the things that we can struggle with is the idol of self-sufficiency. We're high-capacity people here. We want to be involved and active in the marketplace. And this lie that says, I can, I can, I can really manage. I can manage it all. I can, I can bring it together. Never really comes together. <laughs> I'd sit here smiling because we're negotiating a contract right now, uh, which is some details in the partnership. And for the, the you know, the, I, I can object and disagree because the other partner wants to have control. And he can object and disagree with me for really and say the same thing. Well, you just want too much control. It's really the same thing, and it's really an illusion. Mm -hmm. And um, there is a, a point at where there has to be some compromise, and there has to be some risk. You can't live without the risk. So the risk and your perception of risk is where the onset of fear, I think, comes from. And, and the way you handle fear as a faithful believer and a follower of Christ is to reset and recenter your identity yeah on the one who has you and um, you know that that just brings me to a couple of my very very favorite verses one one is this workmanship mm. where his, his workmanship created in Christ Jesus not in the devil we're created in Christ himself for good works uh, which he created beforehand so they've already, they're already there that we should walk in them so, okay, God's got this work for me, and I'm going to walk through it, and it's not all going to be great, and I'm not going to be in control of everything, and I'm going to have to accept some risk. But I know he's going to lead me to greener pastures and cooler waters because he loves me, and he promised me that. And you, if you go to Thessalonians, uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, 24, another life verse, the one who calls you is faithful, not my faith. The one who calls me is faithful. And he will do it, not me. He will do it. And Peter reminds us, whatever you do, do it in a strength that God provides. So these are these anchor verses that I just cling to, hoping that they're true. <laughs> because <laughs> if all of this, you know, goes away, you know, I told Kelly, you know, we may be living in a, you know, a little cottage somewhere with a greatly reduced uh, income and just living on love. <laughs> just like See the Alan Jackson song, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just yeah. just like we were newlyweds, you know. And who wouldn't want that after 28 years of marriage? Yeah. <laughs> do you see how that gets twisted when you sell your spouse? On, this is what I want to go do. Uh, anyway, well, um, Paul, I just uh, just so appreciate um, your wisdom, transparency, and. Uh, you know, we're, we're all of us are all in places and stages of, of we're all having to risk. I mean, that's that's the life of the believer. I love what Brene Brown says. You can have a life of courage or comfort, but you can't have both. And comfort really is the illusion. And we're called to be courageous. And with courage, 
always comes risk. And so um, thank you for your story. Um, any, any ways that we can be praying for you um, and your family in this new venture? Uh, not by strength, not by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. You know, I think my prayer is, is what Peter says. Um, my, my request for prayer is to live in what Peter says. Whatever I do, that I would do it in a strength he provides, not, not in my human strength, not in my humanity, but, but by his spirit. That's my prayer for my walk in the marketplace. That's the person I would be in Christ. Love it. I yeah. love it. Paul, thank you so much. So I'm going to have you stay up here, and then can I have Aaron and Melissa, if you guys can come back up? So thank you all for sharing your stories and your, your experiences, your challenges, your hopes, your dreams, your insights. Um, these are folks that are, are, are living this out. Um, they're risking greatly and they're doing great things in the marketplace, uh, but that's not easy. It's fraught with challenge and struggle, so we just so admire and appreciate your blood, sweat, and tears, and know that you do it from a heart and a love of Christ. So this is really your time. If there's any, any questions that you have um, for any of the folks up here, anything you'd love to just hear more of, learn more about their story. Uh, we've got some, I don't know how you want to do this, Stephanie, just have people talking to the mic or just repeat the question. Yeah. Yeah, so the question is, how do you how do you incorporate your faith and your work? And yeah, walking through that. Um, can you hear me okay? Or, yeah. um, I mean, the only thing that I think of is just our, our terminology. I think a lot of times it's way more natural than maybe we give it credit for. Um, this for me, just personal. I feel like that um, from an outsider standpoint, sometimes a church can have be its own foreign language. The terminology we're very comfortable with using. Um, I, I find sometimes not like the Trojan horse, but you can speak through more economic terms. So like, I like saying adding value rather than like being a blessing to others. Like sometimes you're like, <laughs> it's also when like be a blessing to your you know employees. You're like, what? Like, you know, it's weird, but add value. Like, yeah, add value. Yeah, I got add value. <laughs> um, and, and so I think sometimes just realizing like it's, it's, God's designed everybody, whether they acknowledge it or not. And so there's intrinsic questions that everybody's asking. I had a, a coffee at the Henry the other time, and the girl was, she's like, I researched you. I see that faith is really important. And and we had a really interesting conversation because she's asking, everybody asks the big why question because they're all realizing, like, life, you know, how it fits and the purpose. Everyone's struggling with it. So um, my big thing, I think, just terminology for good, theologically sound people, I think the marketplace just, it feels really weird sometimes when they use the church speak. And if they could just sometimes, same heart, same desire, just think through the terminology more, they'll find that the, you'll get to the core issues pretty quick. 
um, I should honestly be better at this. Um, but a couple of the ways that I have tried is I just try to, um, I try to ha like almost have like a little bit of a personal relationship with my clients. Like I, I had one client who had um, a close team member commit suicide. Um, actually the same client's daughter is currently going through uh, like unknown seizures. And like I just try to like check in with them as people and like see how things are going and like tell them I'll be praying for them and like things like that. They're not like super overt, but try to just like let them know that there's kind of something else out there. Uh, I think that's a really uh, great example. I've often told people I'll pray for you because that's what I know to do. And uh, I've even asked people for permission to pray for them just to elicit a response, whether they are agreeable to that or not, because that might create a conversation down the road. So I've never hid my faith. Uh, well, I say never. I probably did have. But, um, you know, in my recent leadership, you know, over the last 10 years, I was very confident in my faith, and I never apologized for it. Um, but I never uh, attacked anybody with it either. It was available to them, and I would engage them in conversation if they wanted to engage in conversation. I would ask for permission to talk about it sometimes in certain <coughs> situations. Um, and as a result, people begin to know you as a man of faith. And they will approach you and feel open to talk to you about things. And that was my experience. And the, seemed the more confident I was in it, but the more gentle that I was about it, the more people wanted to engage me in the conversation. <laughs> and some of those conversations have gone very deep. I mean, to whiteboard deep, you know, like close the door, it's after hours, let's go to the whiteboard, and, <laughs> you know? Because uh, that's what leaders do, you know? <laughs> let me draw you a diagram. <laughs> And uh, let me manage the, all the objections. So literally, I've witnessed on a whiteboard. Um, yeah, so um, I think you just be bold. Be bold um, and be true. That's it. Yeah, before we start quizzing them. Great, great. Other questions? Yes. Question is, uh, have you heard of the servant leader model? I look. I think of the servant leader model. I don't know who came out with that. Who came out with that? Max or uh, John Maxwell. I was going to say Max Lucado. John Maxwell. Yeah. yeah. I see it really as is sort of uh, what Chad was referring to as as shepherding. I really prefer uh, the shepherding uh, picture, but that it's essentially the same thing. You know, I think serving people, no matter who they are, is meeting their needs. If you're on a team, or you're a team leader. Uh, you need to be able to, to do your part to meet the needs of that team as the leader, as playing the position of the leader. If you're a contributor on that team, only you can play the part that you can play on that team. That's why you're on it. So your objective as that position player should be to serve the rest of the people on the team uh, for the greater good of the accomplishment of the objective, whatever that is. So everybody should be serving. And uh, people that take leadership positions and take power, uh, it's sort of a, oftentimes an artificial form of leadership. 
it's effective when it needs to be. It's a, it's a tool, but it, it doesn't have, um, it doesn't draw out the best in people. Um, you know, p position power is great when it's used effectively, but it should be used sparingly. Other than that, it should be influence and serving others and meeting their needs and setting the example. So that's, that's how I've lived out servant leadership. All right, so question answered. Other questions? So the question is what makes good marketing not, but wait, there's more in the yellow flashing numbers at the bottom of the screen. So first of all, I'm not a marketing agency. So a caveat, <laughs> I'm not a marketing agency. But I think um, in marketing, it's important to be authentic to, to the business. Um, I think people wanna follow crazy like trends and buzzwords and things, and they don't stop and consider whether this even makes any sense for them. Um, whether it makes sense for them as a business, the way they're structured, whether it makes sense for the thing they sell. Um, and when people just do things to do things, that's when it adds just a bunch of noise and clutter and just kind of waste into the marketplace. Um, and so I think like you can be kind of like a good steward of marketing by like actually considering like, is this truly a helpful thing? Is this bringing any joy or benefit or information to people? So I'm not exactly sure if that answers pr your precise question, but okay. It made me think, I I'm sure everyone here watched the Super Bowl this year. Like, I was so frustrated with the commercials. Like, literally, when you're talking about marketing, I think it was like Toyota, Hyundai. I don't know if you guys noticed, like, this massive push for, like, Hyundai did that commercial with, like, you know, serving, you know, special needs kids. And for some odd reason, it was a, it was such a stark, like, everybody's pushing the the, like, you know, we're a greedy corporate enterprise, but let's try and mask it as like we care about these kids. <laughs> but it was just, it's funny to me a little bit of like, there were some companies that I make literally like, you know, you had Toyota, you had faulty brakes that almost killed like, you know, 200 people. And, you know, it was, it, to me, it was just interesting how when you hear you say that you can have a, you can't fake it. Like seeing some of these co corporate companies that have not even had a heartbeat or a, a even slight remote care for that, all of a sudden trying to like hop on this bad wagon for something, you can experience like cold water in the face where it just doesn't even, you know, experience is authentic. But when you're saying marketing um, and you're saying authenticity, you definitely can't fake it. Yeah, I, I think I think good marketing too is is pursue clarity over what's, what's cute or clever. Um, if you can bring clarity to the marketplace with what you do, it sets you apart from other people. And I think businesses often struggle to be able to communicate their identity and what they do. Either they do too much and the audience just gets confused by the message or they don't understand and know their identity themselves. So I would always say pursue clarity above, above everything first. And I think that starts to help separate yourself uh, within the marketplace. Yeah, great. Any other questions?
All right. Oh, sorry. Actually, what are some different ways you get, like, struggle with risk or fear? Or, I mean, you guys hear that topic, what stops? You know, in different ways, I guess, that you guys are struggling with it also. <laughs> or not struggling at all. <laughs> You've mastered it. I had Kelly talk to Ann Wheeler. <laughs> I don't know what she said, but I'm not in Austin. <laughs> you know, honestly, I struggle with that because um, I, th I probably think a little bit logically. But okay, so if I'm wired more, I see an opportunity, and let's say you know my wife's not you know, has um, the same orientation toward, towards risk or just access to the same information. So let's say it's 40 years I'm in a career, I, you know, have a ton of data that, you know, my wife would not have any sort of contextual orientation to other than a wise wife's gut and feel, which is obviously probably more right than wrong. Um, I struggle with that because it, it just to, bring an idea to someone who has no context to the information um, can be challenging to expect them to be like, oh, that's a great idea. I totally get what you're saying. And um, so I've struggled with how, you know, and I guess God bless my wife is just all in with my judgment and <laughs> hope that pans out well. <laughs> um, um, but so it's, it's, kind of, it's, it's interesting because I know a lot, I know a lot of, you know, I'm thinking of one in particular of a small business owner whose wife's husband was a was a, uh, a failure in business environment. And so for whatever reason, her context was I've, I've I've had a dad who went for it, and I and he was kind of an idea guy, never was I guess good at it. And so when she sees her husband taking that risk, she's running it through a whole different filter. And so that, just the common sense of you have yet to be married to think through like your lens of you know what their dad did or how their family raised raised around you know is going to play a lot into how they process risk and but women have a read on human nature that's just second to none i mean i've, I've tried more in business partnerships to go out to dinners with husband and wives and your wife will just pick up on some you know thing that you're just blowing through because you're running the math and you're like oh this is the greatest thing in the world and she's like that's gonna be a failure <laughs> um, so I there's just a there's a that's a, a tension because I know a lot of people that say get your wife on board and you know she's got to say yes and you know other people would say don't include them and I don't think either one's right but there's definitely a maturity and processing context for everybody Um, Ke Kelly and I decided very early in our marriage that I was going to work 
and um, professionally, and she was not. Uh, and we raised a family together, and she chose to uh, take care of the home and, and that side of the entire enterprise of, of the Tyson life. And, um, but she's never been outside of my work. I see Kelly as fundamental to me being successful in the marketplace because that's how we've designed it. So when I go and I take on employment somewhere, um, that employer really gets a package <coughs> deal called Kelly and Paul. Uh, because Kelly's really the, 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 so we're team one. Even in this enterprise that I'm taking on, Kelly, we did take do the obligatory dinner with partners and their spouses uh, for that reason. We were all interviewing everybody, you know, all six of us, and uh, and we survived that. And, and so, that's an insurance policy there as well. In the previous position that I had for 10 years, uh, we all went out together to dinner, spouses and, and executives, to just have the same interview process, right? So Kelly, is through all of the years, knows what I do well. She knows what I'm gifted at. She knows what my character is. And she knows my countenance. So she knows when I'm on or off, and how things are going and not or not going, you know, well or not. And um, I rely on that. So we rely on that. So I, I really re listen very, very closely to what Kelly has to say. And we, I, I never felt like I had to talk her into anything ever. We were doing things together. And if it wasn't right, we stepped away. Uh, lately, it seems like we're making, we're having those conversations weekly. <laughs> <laughs> but that's part of the fear. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. Um, just, I guess, one closing thought because I knew we do need to get going. I think one thing, just as an encouragement for all of us on just why. I think courage and risk taking is really so important. I think it's obviously you'll find out it's something I'm really passionate about. When, but when you do think mathematically, probability, everybody is a one of a kind view of the world from how you're raised, your fears, your failures, uh, what you're scared of. You, it, your view of the world and how you process information is truly one of a kind. There's no one else on earth like it. So to presume that when you see something that may be perceived in your gut as an opportunity, and then to expect other people to see that same thing or to be discouraged when they don't. I know a lot of people that, and a lot of people abuse it, but they'll have some idea and kind of like, like you'll take it to your mom and they're gonna be filled with a lot of negativity. And if you don't have the courage um, and, uh, to trust what's in your gut, because um, I, I do think God puts ideas in people that are to be stewarded just as much as resources, just as much of, so ideas are great because if you kind of just keep sitting on them and they don't disappear, there's kind of this filtering process of like, man, maybe this is just like you, like you can't not do what's been in you. And so I think that's what just, I think like risk and defining it and having courage is so big because there's so many people I think that just, whether it's comfort or whether it's what their parents want or what they think, you know, their peer group wants will go in a direction contrary to, I think, what 
and they're miserable. They spend a long time in a position they realize they've never been true to themselves, and I do think that's a divine thing that God puts in people, and so I think this topic is, it's a massive thing, and it's where idols can <clears throat> really distort, flourish living, and I'm always kind of compelled, like, man, what if I wasn't so tied to this? What could God have done? Or those really big, like, I think, courageous, adventurous steps forward of, you know, win or lose, it doesn't matter, you know, from a standpoint. What's a, what's a blessed life is seeing God work. And so I think to be courageous and um, see beyond your own understanding, you know, trust God beyond what you can see. And when you see him work, that richness, that's like a fulfilled, flourishing life. And so I think this topic is um, something always to be chewed through when you're fearful, always process why. Um, but to be, I think just between you and God, just really courageous and not to expect other people to always see what you see. Because um, I think there's a lot of people that just don't take steps forward because a mom or dad says that's a dumb idea. In reality, it's like, they're wise and they're our parents, but they don't have a freaking clue what God's going to do in your life. So um, anyway, I love this stuff. I mean, I think these mark gospel marketplace things are amazing because most churches don't get to the real intrinsic kind of detailed heart issues. And it's always kind of like, share your faith, start a Bible study, do this. It, you know, that's how you glorify God. But I mean, I love these things. And I think it's so, we're so blessed to have a community that kind of, it's not, you know, it's processes it out loud and thinks through it and can be encouraged by everyone's story. So these things are great. Thank you guys for doing it. Yeah. Thanks, Aaron. I'll let you hold on to that. Yeah. Um, well, thank you all again. Um, so appreciate the insight, the wisdom, the passion. Um, let me pray for us. And thank you all for coming tonight. It's been, it's been a treat. It's been a lot of fun. Father, we, uh, we're so blessed. Um, God, to walk this, this journey with you, this, this journey that's filled with with courage, with risk, with daring. God, you've not called us to an easy life, a safe life, but you've called us to a good life, Lord, that's, um, that's full of adventure, it's full of ups and downs, and the life of faith is the most exciting life, the best life there is to lead. And so, God, we pray that we would receive what, what, what's been said tonight through your Holy Spirit. Um, help us to receive it uniquely in our own individual ways. We ask for your blessing on, um, on Aaron, Melissa and Paul and the work that they're involved in and with their families and loved ones and um, God help us to um, help us to press in more to the unique ways you've called us in our careers we pray this in your name